everybody, this is David, a.k.a. Macintosh. And I'm Diana, a.k.a. Mod, and welcome to our very first Macintosh Mod Haven't Seen What Patreon episode. It's kind of a neat little tie-in special episode we've got for you guys. Yeah, we've got Hearts of Darkness coming out, or is already coming out. Which is a documentary about the making of a film a little indie, not-so-known... Uh, uh, but well-respected film. Called Apocalypse Now. Yeah, which I had never seen. So in order to watch the documentary, I really, really feel like you had to see the movie itself, too. Because it's gonna change one way or another how you feel about the movie later on. Yeah, so in order to do that episode we for our documentary do... series, we had to do this. Yeah. And we decided to make that some Patreon content. So you get to hear exactly what Diana thinks of this movie just on its own merits mm -hmm. before we ever get into the amazing story of how this got made. Okay. During the Vietnam War... Captain Willard is sent on a dangerous mission into Cambodia to assassinate a renegade colonel who has set himself up as a god among a local tribe. This movie had a $31.5 million budget, which for 1979 a is a fuck ton of money. It is Coppola. And its total box office was $83,471,511. And I don't know if that includes re-releases and the Redux. I think the Redux is tracked separately because it was released as an entirely new film. When they, when they put it out in like 2001. I mean, they recouped their money. They got more than their money back. But that's not a lot. That's not a great return. Well... Let me get your initial thoughts on this movie. My initial thoughts. I don't like how it ends. Okay. Uh, what it, don't you like about how it ends? I said this after the film. I said that it felt very unresolved. But I also knew that the Vietnam War was very unresolved. So that's not wrong. And I also just looked at you and was like, that's the point. No, I, I know that. <laughs> I just, as a viewer, did not like it. But what specifically... Considering we spent almost three hours with, like, this is my plan, this is my plan, and then he... But he never had a plan. That's the whole That's the whole point of this, is that as Willard is going down this mission, he doesn't make up his mind until he meets Kurtz. What the hell he's actually gonna do? I know. They've put him on this mission, and the only reason he's doing it is because he has nothing to live for. Mm -hmm. And... He cannot help but be there. Yeah. Like, he's like, there is no more home to go to anymore. These yeah. guys don't know that, but I do. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. It just, it was, it, I just didn't like how it was done. It, it could have been done differently. I view this movie as something other than a war film. Because I think it all too easily gets categorized as war film. Yeah. When in reality, I feel like this is far more of a poem in some ways. It's a very stylized nightmare vision of it's war. It's an experience. Yeah, and not just a pure war film. Not necessarily a film. narrative. Yeah, a war film narrative on its own. Yeah. And if you take it that way... 
Because when when I first watched it, first of all, I never saw this cut. I saw the Redux, which we'll talk about later, and plays a little more as a narrative, but also doesn't work as well as I feel like this movie does. The flip side of it, though, is that at some point you have to just engage the movie on that term, because otherwise I, I think it totally falls apart as just a narrative movie. Yes. So if you start thinking of it as this is kind of an amazing artistic representation of the war as an mm-hmm. idea yeah it becomes really profound yeah no i agree i agree with that it's not a bad movie it's not a movie i'm gonna watch again <laughs> it's a very strange experience and i think either you're gonna you're I, gonna be floored by it and it's a solid 30 minutes too long <laughs> you're either gonna be floored by it or you're just gonna be huh about yeah. it Everybody who watches this movie is, like, silent for 15 minutes after. Either because they're like, I'm confused, or, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I laughed at a lot of places that I knew you weren't laughing, and when when the guy freaks out the tiger. Why fucking tiger? Yeah. And he's, just, he's breaking down. I know he's having a breakdown. I was laughing because it was... I know he's having a complete breakdown. Right. And that is not funny. For me, what was funny was that it was a tiger that was what caused him to break down. No, and... That's what was just so ridiculous. And it was, for for me, I felt like it was a really funny juxtaposition of all of these, of all the things he's seen, of all this horrible shit, the thing that breaks him is a tiger. Yeah. I found that to be funny. Let's talk about the writing and the development of this movie. Because we're going to get into some of those issues as we talk about it. And then we'll be able to render even more judgments later on when you guys hear this on our, when you guys hear Hearts of Darkness. Okay. The writer is an epic story of a man unto himself named John Milius. Who is John Milius? Uh, John Milius was part of the entire New Hollywood crew of Coppola, Spielberg, and Lucas. Okay. He was friends with all those guys. Okay. He's a notoriously fascinating screenwriter. Um, he's also a total libertarian conservative NRA dude and a total and a right wing nut job. Interesting. But he's incredibly talented at writing. Okay. This is the man who wrote and gave us Red Dawn. I've never seen that. He also wrote Conan the Barbarian. I have seen that, unfortunately. He is also. Well, let me just show you a, a, a picture of this gentleman, and you tell me, is there a certain film character that you think might be based off of John Milius? That looks like comic book guy. No, it looks like Walter Subcheck from The Big Lebowski, because that is who Walter is based on. He was written for John Goodman to play, but the Coen brothers were good friends, like most people in Hollywood, with Milius. I fully see that. If and they just had that haircut. And they based it. they based Walter on that John Milius. That military haircut. That would be him. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great movie. <laughs> great John Goodman. And <sighs> so if you want to feel for who this guy is, just think Walter from Big Lebowski. Okay. So that's who wrote this movie. <laughs> Milius wanted to be in Vietnam. He was not drafted and he, I don't think he became eligible, but he like actually wanted to go fight there. Which is insane for people who knew what was going on there at the time. Mm-hmm. Spielberg, Lucas, and John Milius were all working on Francis Ford Coppola's first real independent production, The Rain People, mm-hmm. in 1969. And they both were trying to convince Milius to write a Vietnam War movie. 
they were like, you got to write one, dude. Mm -hmm. Like, you are the guy who can encapsulate what's going on here. Because you know all these guys who've been there, you know all these stories, and you can write it. So Milius is working through this in his head, and he comes up with the idea of adapting Joseph Conrad's 1890s novel, Heart of Darkness. Okay. Heart of Darkness is a tale of the perils of colonialism. It's the same basic plot structure of Guy is sent out to go find Kurtz. Yeah. But they're merchants, they're ship guys, they're not actual, like, soldiers. Okay. But he's sent to go find Kurtz and bring him back. And Kurtz has gone deep into the jungle, and the deeper he's gone, the more mad he's gotten. And it's all about how they've ruined these indigenous people's lives along the way. Okay. So... That's what it's all based on. Milius remembers reading this in college, thinking about the story and absorbing how that would cross-apply to Vietnam. A lot. What he really did was he also pulled from stories and people he knew. Okay. Willard was based on a gentleman who had fought in Vietnam Mm -hmm. and who had come back, a special forces guy that he knew, Mm -hmm. who also claimed to know the... The story Brando tells in the movie of the arms getting hacked off after being inoculated. Now, most historians say they have no evidence to know that that's true and think it's an urban legend that went around the military in Vietnam. Because that story is that the military went in to inoculate the children of polio and then... The VC came in and hacked the arms off of all the children in the village and laid the arms down in the middle to, to prove what their war was. Yeah. And the VC were brutal. Yeah, no, no, Like, don't I get know. me wrong. Both sides were, were brutal on their different ends. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is, is that there was so much misinformation during that war. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to tell who the real enemy was. Yeah. I mean, things like the My Lai Massacre happened, especially with grunt soldiers. Yeah. Because they saw... I mean, we see this in the movie, where a villager comes out and is running over as a guy's getting in a medic. And most of the villagers are horrified. They're like, oh my god, this kid is dying in the middle of our village. Yeah. We'll do anything. Woman comes up, goes to the helicopter, and they yell, she's got a grenade. Boom. That's what they did. They were willing to die in suicide missions, and that's how the VC operated. They had to assume everyone was a suicide bomber. They were so freaked out. Yeah. And so it was so easy to dehumanize their enemy when you got out there Mm -hmm. that it becomes a living nightmare. And that's sort of the tone this movie builds up to. Sure. Kurtz is based off of the actual head of special forces in Vietnam. Okay. Who I'm assuming the Pentagon Papers revealed a lot of this because that's where all of the information about what we were doing in Vietnam and Cambodia and countries we weren't Mm -hmm. supposed to be at war with. We saw a movie about that stuff. Hey, The Post, guys. Sort yeah, of. Sorry. doesn't really talk about the Pentagon Papers, but it uses it as a pretext. Hey, we all know that I have very little grasp on history. These movies help string things together. I know, it's true. <laughs> but apparently his tactics were incredibly dark and creepy and heavy-handed. Not sanctioned by the military. Uh, well, they couldn't sanction anything because no. they were they were fighting a war in Cambodia. And they, they talked about... to be in. I was listening to a podcast about the movie Rescue Dawn with Christian Bale. Okay. And one of the things they talk about is that in that movie, they're flying sorties, fighter sorties over Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So they're dropping bombs on the trail route because the supply route for the North Vietnamese army went through Cambodia and Laos mm-hmm. to try to stop the military from being, the U.S. from being able to bomb it. 
Yeah. So they were running these air raids because they thought they could get away with it. But they said, if you crash land, rip your patches off, rip your insignia off. We are not coming to rescue you. You do not exist. Yep. Because we are not fighting in Cambodia. Yep. Under no circumstances do you say anything. And that's exactly why in this movie, this mission does not exist. It has never existed. Yep. You will not tell anyone that it exists. Yeah, if you get caught, you're dead. Exactly. Like, there's there's no coming back. Because we are not fighting a war in, in Cambodia right now. Yep. So. This is, this is a suicide mission. Absolutely. And that's why you send somebody like Willard. Willard who, who has literally who, nothing left to lose. Who wants a suicide mission. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an insane story. It's an insane <laughs> and story. And premise. And it's very real. And there are definitely people like this. That's what's, that's what's so crazy is... You would think this is incredibly tropey. And in some ways, this is built off of something between real and urban legend from what happened in the war. True. But the feeling of the movie seems very accurate. I was reminded a lot of the Hurt Locker about Jeremy Renner's character in that. In that he's, especially with the, the statement that Willard makes, is that like every time... They bring a little bit of home here. We just can't wait to get back. And then when we get back, we just want to come back here. Mm-hmm. There's, we're just stuck in this middle place. And I love that whole thing with Jeremy Renner's character in Hurt Locker was that he's counting down how many missions he has to do until he can go back. And then he, and gets, then he gets back and it's just like, I can't be here. I belong out there. Because I'm the only guy who's this good at it. Yeah. And because he, he's the de- bomb diffuser guy. And it was, that's what brought me to this. It's like, there are some people who are just so well suited for this horrible, horrible life. All respect to our military. And I fully understand that there are some things that just suck that have to be done. But this did not. This did not. And what's going on here, I feel like is an even nth degree higher than yes. that. I think the Hurt Locker is actually yanking that away from this movie. And oh, using oh, agreed. That and um, building that trope in. Because one of the nice thing about seeing this movie is I can see where so many other things have come from. Because exactly. I, I know this established a lot. It's also hard to watch this movie and not go like, oh, this feels hacky. And it was like, yeah, but in 1979, it, it did hacky. not feel hacky. I, it didn't at feel all. hacky. Well, I'll tell you what felt hacky. It was Marlon Brando. We'll get there. The last part of it is is that the narration mm-hmm. was written by a different gentleman, Martin Hur, which okay. I didn't see his credits or anything. I, I, I've heard that name before, though, so I think he's done some other stuff. But all of Willard's narration throughout mm-hmm. the movie was written by another person. And then Coppola, as he does with all his movies, also was heavily involved mm-hmm. in the screenwriting process. But that's what Zoetrope did. It was all very collaborative filmmaking. Yeah. And so, you know, he tended to take huge creative control over whatever project he was doing, which is fine because that's one of the things he was incredibly fucking good at was writing a screenplay. All right. Which leads us to our director, Francis Ford Coppola. Coming off of The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, and The Conversation, which is another movie you've got to see at some point. Okay. Another completely polar opposite type movie from both The Godfather series and this. Okay. Right after The Godfather Part 2, they were scouting locations for this. Okay. So we saw the notes, and we'll get into it when we get into the documentary. Production on this started around 1976. Okay, this movie came out in 79. So, like, this took a long fucking time to build. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Right. There's nothing much more to say about Coppola. He's one of the greats, though his his stretch of great films came in the 70s. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that he had this great early promising stretch. And mm-hmm. then from there on, it, you know, I mean, he made the it movie fizzled. Jack. Like. It just fizzled. Uh, yeah. 
Jack. Was that the one with Robin Williams? Yes. Oh, God. That movie was horrible. There's some real stinkers in there. Yes. Um, I mean, well, he also yeah, did... He did The Outsiders. He did do The Outsiders, and he did Rumblefish, so... Oh, I forgot about Rumblefish. But obviously one of the great directors, and yeah. he was... At the same time, he was the de facto head of that movement. Yes. He brought George Lucas and Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. and John Milius and all these other guys right underneath him. Yeah. Because he founded American Zoetrope Pictures and he what, gave all what these guys... What does Zoetrope a, mean? A Zoetrope is, because I've been to the Coppola Winery in Napa Valley, so Ooh. I know this. I've seen uh, that actual, is, I'm I'm not a super wino, but that's a place I would like to go. It's a really, really cool place because they have all the memorabilia yeah, that's, in a that's room why I would go. So, you know, for anybody seeing this movie, I have seen Colonel Kilgore's surfboard. Yeah. The Zoetrope is... One of the original pieces of moving picture machinery. It's the wheel that has slits in it. And then there's images on the inside. So when you look at the slit image, it makes it look like it's a moving picture. Oh, okay. So if you've ever seen what those look like, that was the Zoetrope. I hadn't hadn't heard that terminology. And I'm sure some of our listeners don't either, Mr. Hoity Toity Man. I know. The only reason I know this is because I watched the fucking special features for THX 1138, which is the first movie that American Zoetrope put out. I also have never seen that. I don't know that you have to. I love okay. it, but I also love not You're great weirdo. sci-fi movies. So, so. <laughs> Exactly. That's a movie that cements that George Lucas can do really cool stuff with a camera, mm. but probably should never write a script. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that pretty much cements it for me. Originally, John Milius wanted George Lucas to direct this movie. I think I knew about this. And Lucas was all in. Like, after American Graffiti, Lucas was heavily working on it, developing the script with Mm -hmm. Milius. Coppola told Milius, like, write every idea you've ever had for a movie into the script. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way they did shit. It was Mm -hmm. just like, look, man, who knows if we're ever going to produce this? Go hog wild and let's try it. Yeah. So he had, like, ten different scripts with a thousand pages of material to sift through. And so they were working through how to piece everything together. And they they were gearing up, they were moving on it, and then Star Wars got greenlit. And Lucas said... I gotta go do this. This is this is too much, mm-hmm. and so Coppola steps in, takes over, and takes over the filming of the movie. Mm-hmm. We'll find out if that was worth the struggle or not okay, when we well, get to the documentary. I, I do know the the tiny nugget of this is supposedly Lucas did give Coppola his blessing to do this film, but it did cause a rift between them for a while. Like, they stopped being friends over it for a while. I have no idea, because it's been so long since I've seen this stuff. Okay. But, I mean... That's that's the tiny little nugget I know about that, or what... That's what I've read. Well, and Lucas was developing this as a dark comedy. hmm Okay. And... Uh, I could see but the spin they were taking. I mean, Milius was apparently inspired by Dr. Strangelove, and some of the... Like, first half of the movie, mm-hmm. especially stuff with, like, Colonel Kilgore, okay. is incredibly dark comic in that style. It's when we get further down the river that I'm like, that would never continue to work. Okay. The further down this yeah. fucking river you get, the darker you have to go. Because it just doesn't work. So let's talk about the cast. Yep. Let's start off with our main Bill dude. Martin Sheen as Willard. You mean Ramon Estevez? <laughs> That is his legal name. I know it's his legal name. He was so young. Okay, I am deep into Grace and Frankie. I love it. It's kind of my fall asleep TV right now. 
So 80 year old or almost 80 year old Martin Sheen is I'm watching him every night. If all you've ever seen of Martin Sheen is the West Wing, Mm -hmm. you're in for a surprise. Yeah. Because this this is is the polar opposite. Yes. And it's the man has aged wonderfully. He is so good at being steely. Which is what this movie requires of him. He does a he does a lot without talking and not being overly expressive. He has to internalize every single thing mm-hmm. because at every point of horrific shit he has to deal with, yeah. he has to just compartmentalize it and move forward. Yep. And his reaction to everything is, ugh, these fucking idiots. Yep. When like it's clearly insane what they're doing. Yeah, like, I just have to put up with this to get to the next thing, and then the next thing. It's, he's literally just biding his time. And it's amazing that he's able to do it. Yeah, and he does a really good job. And he, yeah. And I, he, I really like Martin Sheen in this. And as crazy as things get, he never breaks. Everyone else breaks. Everyone breaks. But well, he doesn't. You know what? No, that's not true. He did break. He broke in the very beginning at the ho- at, in the hotel room. That's true. That's when he was broken. Oh yeah, and and why is he broken? Because he he, he keeps... doesn't have anything to do. Yeah, he's bored. Oh yeah, that's a big problem for vets when they come home. They're so used to someone telling me where to go, what to do, what when to eat, and they come home, and even if they're still in the military, that regiment is not there but i love the understatedness of that scene with him mm-hmm. because it's so easy to overplay that but he punches a mirror and then just naked on the floor crying drunk yep and bloody blood all over his face and you're just like i believe everything you're yep. feeling right now it's insane yep there were a shit ton of people who were approached or thought of for this role oh i'm sure this was There's a no- who could have been better extraordinaire all right give me some names the first choice was Steve McQueen. No. Steve McQueen did not want to spend 17 weeks outside of the U.S. I don't believe Because you. that's what this role would have, requ- that's what this role required. In the jungle, no less. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. I don't know. Steve McQueen's got that same steeliness. I think you'd be surprised. They'd have to dirty him up a little bit. But he had he had the cragginess. Mm-hmm. It would have been very interesting to see him in that role. Mm-hmm. It really would have. Al Pacino also turned down the role. Same reasons. Okay. And, you know, Coppola obviously had a relationship with yeah, Pacino from The Godfather. Of course. So I on could, and so forth. And and those were very taxing films. But, I could I could understand being like, I don't want to do this. But also Pacino He needed, He could have played one of the officers. He could have played Kurtz. He could have played um Kilgore. He could have played the photojournalist. Oh, that would have been funny too. Though, so, but that's how it's great. But he he could have played he, any of the more manic roles so much better than this. Yeah. Finally, approached we had Robert Redford, Ooh. Jack Nicholson. Yeah, that makes sense. And James Caan. Ooh, James Caan. James Caan would have been very good, especially Jack, at this point for James Caan. Jack Nicholson would have overacted the fuck out of this. He could have been an amazing Colonel Kurtz. He would have, I would have liked, that's the only person who's allowed to be that way. Uh, Robert Redford's too clean, I ju- especially at this point. He's just too clean to pull it off. He could have been, um, he could have been one of the guys in the crew. But James Caan would have been pretty awesome. James Caan would have been good. Also, considered, but never approached, were Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, Hell yes. Yeah? Keith Carradine. Okay. Nick Nolte. Yeah, I see that a lot. 
And getting the role of chef instead, mm-hmm. Frederick Forrest. What else has Frederick Forrest been in? Nothing. I looked at the credits. He's a familiar face, but I don't know anything he's been in other than maybe guest stars on TV shows. I looked at everything. Did you do I was anything like, since? I mean, he he worked, but nothing in Just particular that was of, of no random stuff. Yeah. Because I really liked him. He reminded me so much of Paul Rudd. A little bit, yeah. Now, he was doing a 70s idea of Paul Rudd in some ways. Yeah. But, like, Paul Rudd would, if we remade this movie now, I'm like, Rudd, put him in the movie. Put him in a chef. He'd be so good. And in the dramatic, insane gravitas he's got to have. But that would be the perfect But chef is kind of the comic relief dude sort of so i'm, I'm it's there's it's really no, no relief com- in this movie it's him or lance not really lance it's clean yeah well clean is more of the comic relief because he's just goofing around so mm-hmm. in 2015 we get a story that i don't know if it's ever really been corroborated but it's good nonetheless that clint eastwood said he was approached for the role of willard okay also turned down because he wasn't willing to spend that long out of the yeah. country. And that McQueen tried to convince him to do it. And McQueen would play Kurtz. So that McQueen would only have two weeks of work. <laughs> That's funny. I believe that. Clint would have been really interesting in this role. This would have been a very different movie for him in a good, in an interesting yes, way. That could have been interesting. That would have been good. And Steve McQueen as Kurtz would have been fascinating. Uh, it would have been better. To watch him go crazy and manic. It would have been better. <laughs> it would have been better. Um, so Martin Sheen mm-hmm. had actually tested for the role of Michael in The Godfather. Oh, that makes sense. And Coppola had been very impressed by him at the time. They mm-hmm. went with Pacino, obviously. Yeah. I, I... Uh, but he always remembered Sheen. Mm-hmm. However, Sheen was already attached to another project at the time they started. So their original actual casting of this role was Harvey Keitel. Whoa. That makes a lot of sense. And Keitel could not work. Coppola hated the, what was coming out because he said Keitel was incapable of looking like a disinterested observer. He, Every he, time he something would engaged. happen, he would react too strongly. And that's what Jack Nicholson would have done, too. Exactly. Ky- and Keitel is the same kind of an actor. Keitel is so they're clearly... Both, they're both very talented. That's just not something that they do well. well. they're incredibly reactive actors. They absorb what's going on in the moment and feed off of that. And they could Nicholson feeds off of the energy of yeah. the scene he's in. And Sheen was able to just go cold and get past it, which is required when you have a scene where you've got this woman dying in a, in a boat full of no danger whatsoever, and you just have to shoot her so you can get down the fucking river. Yep. With a bunch of guys who think you're insane. (laughs) This is just something I have to deal with to get to the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz. He's horrible. He's horrible? He's horrible. The only thing he gets right is he's creepy as fuck. His dialogue is stupid. Yeah. It makes no sense. Which, I know he's supposed to be crazy, but it makes no sense. He's horrible. Yeah. He's horrible. It's because here's here's where they undercut all of it, is that when he goes to look through the guy's papers, it has written, burn them all down. Like, destroy them all. So there was a level of, he's still there, present. So it's just stupid. It's just all fucking stupid. <laughs> like... And I love Marlon Brando in The Godfather. He's amazing. He's amazing in On the Waterfront. I haven't seen Streetcar Named Desire, but... I hate that movie. 
I don't know. I I'm, hate that play. I know that's blasphemous, but I fucking hate Tennessee Williams. There are flashes of brilliance in his performance. Mm-hmm. The eyes when he first emerges into the light My, and just his face in that for, scene. You're like, me, oh shit. The key to him is his mouth. Yes. The way his face is structured is his mouth holds all of the cards to how it changes. Yeah. It just does. And he's very measured with how he moves his mouth. And that's great. And that's wonderful. But what's coming out of his mouth is pure bullshit and stupid. But I think that's true no matter what. The thing is, I think if you had a different actor, it wouldn't feel like bullshit. It would feel like the actual ravings or not even the ravings. It would feel like the psychotic break of a man. Okay, well, he's horrible in this movie. I don't disagree. Okay, he's horrible in this movie. And it sucks because otherwise the whole thing leads up to this amazing moment. And if you had somebody else doing it, it would just be jaw-dropping incredible. Like we said, if you had Jack Nicholson playing that role, holy fuck. Especially after the, you know, the next year he would play Jack in The Shining. Yeah. We and, know that he's got it in him. And, you know, just to be able to see the the flip side of that manic energy mm-hmm. into this cold, dead-eye, mm-hmm. schizo energy, just to see Nicholson pull that off, because I know he could have, yeah. would be amazing. I think the writing is actually pretty solid, The and the poetry is meant to be that evocative. Like, he's he's gone into this way subconscious level of id that he thinks is wholly incorrect but it's it's truly insane because it means like killing everyone yeah anyone that's seen as a threat is bad yeah it sucks i don't know it's a shame he's horrible i know he's a horrible human too so yeah there's that that doesn't help let's go to the best performance in the movie robert duvall as colonel kilgore is that the best performance in the movie? Oh, for fuck's sake. It's hilarious. He's the only Academy Award nominated actor in this film for supporting That's actor. sad. Hilarious, but sad. But unlike Brando, mm-hmm. who we can't believe at all is this, this man who's completely broken with reality, Kilgore is completely believable as the fucking Civil War cavalry dude oh, he's who just flies believable. helicopters instead. He, I just fly a helicopter so I can surf. The surfing bit. The surfing thing is, is so hol- fucking It is great. very funny. It's great. I love it and I totally get it. I and really the napalm like- speech is is eye-rolling at first, but when you hear his delivery of it, yeah. it's so perfect. Yeah. Spell it! You spell it! Napalm, son! Nothing else in the world smells like that! I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking dink body. Smell! You know that gasoline smell? The whole hill. Smells like... Victory. Someday this war's gonna end. Every moment he's on screen, I want more of him. Oh, he's he's great. I really like the piece of narration. It's like... He was one of those guys that had that weird light around him. You just knew he wasn't gonna get so much as a scratch here. 
And then they have the raid, yeah. and he's standing, and there's bombs bursting everywhere. And then he takes off his shirt, and but he's like, we're every, going surfing! Every guy ducks, and he's Except just standing. And then, the, and then the other perfect line, which is kind of based off of something in the Six Days War in Israel, but mm-hmm. Milius brilliantly comes up with it, because this is like the best character he's written, I think. Yeah. That's the other side of it. Is you know Charlie don't surf. Lance, go with Mike. Let him pick out the board for you, and bring me my Yater spoon, the eight six. I don't know, sir. It's what a... is it, soldier? Well, I mean, it's pretty hairy in there. It's, it's Charlie's point. Charlie don't surf. Charlie being all of the Viet Cong, the NVA, North yeah. Vietnamese Army, NBA. VC. This movie is not racially sensitive in any form or fashion. Nope. Like they said the word slope, and I had to look at you and was like, "What are they?" I slant. I was, what are what, yeah. what do they mean? And he and David was just like, they, they mean all of the Asian people. Yeah. And I was like, I thought it was offensive. I needed to be sure. I mean, yeah. No, no, no. You're <laughs> going to hear, you're going to hear Slope, Gook, and Charlie over and over again in this movie. Um, it's that's, not, it's not good. It's, it's bad. it is, however, the common way of dehumanizing the enemy. True. And that is how they talked. It's how some people still talk about. Some people, which is not nice. No, absolutely not. Um, yeah. It's just, it's an incredible moment for that character. Like, oh, it's good. And you know, 15 minutes of screen time, probably. And he's Eleven. the most compelling person. Jesus. He's so fucking good. And Judy Dench beat him. She had eight minutes and she won an Oscar. I know. Okay. Frederick Forrest as chef. We talked about him. him. So we'll... He was great. Let's get back. I love the waking out scene. I love that scene because you're right. It is both hilarious and then the longer that he's freaking out, it's this moment of like, holy shit, that was funny. It's when he starts yelling, never leave, get out of the boat, never get out of the boat. But That's w- when it starts getting well, sad. And Coppola does this amazing thing of just lingering. Mm-hmm. He does it with all these guys mm-hmm. where it's at first you're just like, holy shit, holy shit. And then, oh no, oh no, because you start seeing the cost of it on their sanity. Yeah. And that's what's so perfect about how he films those moments. Yeah. Sam Bottoms as Lance the Surfer. He's pretty good. The fucking dog. And the, the, where's that dog? Where's we that have to dog? go back to get the dog. After, you know, one of his guys is shot. Yeah. Like but that's like, what he's worried about. But I you get it. Well I and he, totally when he understand. when he drops acid and they hit yeah. that village and you're like, oh shit. Hey Lance, what do you think? It's beautiful. Huh? I mean, what's what's the matter with you? You acting kind of weird. <laughs> hey, you know that last tub of acid I was saving? Yeah. I dropped it. You dropped acid? Far out. And he's just sitting, he's got the dog in his flak jacket. Yep. Walking through the trenches. Larry Fishburn. Larry Fishburn. As great. clean. Yeah, he's great. He's just a little... He's gangly and lanky, and it's insane. You have no idea it's him. Because he's 14 years old. I, okay, that blew my mind. That he lied about his age to get into the production, and he was 14 when they started in 76. That's so funny. (laughs) That's great. I love it. And, at 14, able to pull off the weight of the young kid on the boat. It helps that he's really tall. He's always been a tall guy, but he's just this little sliver of a human being. He's just so tiny. And his death scene is by far the most impacting. Yeah, it is very sad. It's so sad because you knew the second he was shot, he was he was dead. Well, it's the you know he's dead, and it's like oh, sad. And then they start surrounding him, 
and the way they shoot it with the audio of his mom's tape yeah it's just gutting that is actually Lawrence fishburne's mom on the tape harrison ford playing a fucking nerd in this movie He's not very good at military stuff. No, he's not. But I I love that he plays completely against type. So yeah. he was actually, a year before this, in Force 10 from Navarone. Okay. Which is like this weird kind of remake, kind of sequel to The Guns of Navarone. But he plays like an actual deep military dude. He's not very good at military. So in this, he's playing a nerd guy who's like, oh, well, sir, you know, um, actually. And I love it. And he's playing Officer Lucas. Uh-huh. James Kahn was supposed to play this role first. Oh, okay. But wanted too much money. That's fair. For the little tiny amount of screen time. Yeah, he's in it maybe five yeah. minutes. So they yeah. pulled Harrison in instead. That works. Dennis fucking Hopper. He's awesome. Who are you? Mm. Who are you? <laughs> I'm a photo journalist. He's awesome. I wanted more of him. Now, let me be very clear. He's not acting at all. Nope. That's just Dennis Hopper. That's especially at this point in his life. Yep. Because, you know, he was constantly fucking high on everything. He's awesome. I loved him. I mean, he was an amazing actor early on in the 60s when he started being a part of the rebel movement in cinema. And then well into the 90s after he got clean and was still making great movies. Like, he went into rehab in 83 and still gave amazing performances after that. Nothing changed. So, incredible dude. And made it to an old age despite all the shit he did to himself. Yep. Pretty impressive. Finally, the most unrecognizable version of an actor we've ever seen. Yeah. Scott Glenn as Colby, the officer who went downriver before Willard to mm-hmm. try to stop Kurtz. It's yeah. the beard. It's the beard. Like, because, one, Go- he's he's super young, which is the one thing. But the beard completely camouflages that guy's face. And I'm just like, do you know who that is? I, I, I don't know. Like, it was Scott Glenn. I- what? <laughs> and then you see his eyes and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that is him. But I was like, it's the beard. It's this the, movie. The beard just makes it so weird. This movie is such a fun game of, holy shit, that person's in this movie? Wait, nope. they're in this movie? No, that movie is The Outsiders. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> Coppola manages to bring very interesting people in. All right, awards. Because okay. this will get us into two of our biggest technical achievements in this movie. Okay. Cinematography. It, it won, won the Academy Award for Cinematography. Vittorio Storaro. Uh, 100% earned. Holy shit, Because man. that was something I noticed watching this, is the use of shadows. The use of shadows and lighting. Yeah, lighting. But shadows, most definitely, he's often shooting people where half their face you cannot see. Exactly. And, and, And then the actor moves into the light and then back. Mm-hmm. So it's being used in a couple different ways, and he used a, he used it a lot whenever there was a fight, yeah, was shooting, and then heavily with Marlon Brando. Oh, well, I know, that... I know that's a whole other issue because of his weight. They were hiding that. I, I knew that. I've known yeah. that for a while. That he just got he showed up super fat, and they didn't know about. It. But they used it to great effect. Oh, in that night in that nighttime fight scene. Yeah. It's, oh God. Because it's that whole thing of the lights just flashing mm-hmm. in front of Martin Sheen's face, and you're like, "What the fuck is going on? I can't see." Well, then the other thing that I made a joke about when we were watching is like, "Well, they really spent all their money on flares and smoke colors. It's beautiful. One, it adds color that you didn't necessarily have before, but it 
it you it was this beautiful piece of camouflage exactly and confusion and so it was beautiful on screen but also it it added another level to the story. Well, when Lance lights that purple flare, the purple. and then all of a sudden there's VC fire all you can't over see the place. Anything. But they've distract. But he's distracted, distracted everybody on the boat. Yeah. And now you know they all see this purple thing. It's like, oh shit, American GIs. Let's go Boom. shoot it. Yeah. So that was really neat, and that was a really awesome effect. So yes. Unfortunately, this guy also worked with Bertolucci on Last Tango in Paris and some Woody Allen films, so... Uh, so whatever. You're a, you're a problematic person. I mean, take the money where you can get it, I guess, but, you know. <sighs> I hope your personal convictions are better than those of the people that you've worked with. Okay, next award. Sound. Won the Academy Award for Sound. What was it up against? 1941. A garbage movie. Uh, I don't even know what that movie is. It is Steven Spielberg's absolute worst dud of a bomb. Like, it's bad. Okay, then. Meteor, The Electric Horseman, and The Rose. It wins! (laughs) It also wins because it's incredible. Walter Murch. I agree with that statement. Walter Murch had done the sound design for The Godfather, American Graffiti, THX 1138, and The Conversation, which... Oh, 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 the sound design on that one. Holy shit. It's the entire point of that movie. Anyway, Walter Murch had no bank of sounds to go on. The weapons they were using had never been recorded live on a microphone oh. in the field. Wow. They created all of this shit wholesale. This whole movie is Foley. Almost all of it. Foley and ADR. They figured out how to make that Fuck. sound work yes here's your statue can i give you a tiny one for just that little extra there's a there's a whole documentary on the blu-ray and i want to watch it just about the sound yeah because i think also they were the first ones to use dolby 5.1 the surround sound features and stuff like that so it made you feel like you were in the middle of it but the slow motion helicopter noise mixing in with with the with the doors and how everything flows together, the the fact of the tape playing and the mixing of that as they're recognizing clean is shot. Yeah, it's insane what they were able to do. That's awesome. Yeah. And Walter Murch is a fucking genius. He also edited this movie, or at least was part of the editing team. It was nominated. It was not nominated for editing, Hmm. which I think is kind of shameful. It was nominated for Best Picture. Okay. Do you remember who won? Yeah, because you complained about it during the movie. Previous Macintosh and Mod entry, Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, we covered that movie during our Best Picture series. Right, so Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And it was going up against... Apocalypse Now was up against Kramer versus Kramer in all three of these categories. Mm-hmm. I feel rightfully okay in saying this is better in all three categories. This is superior in all three of those, to Kramer no. versus Kramer. I'm going to say no for writing. Are you kidding me? Because Kramer won for writing, right? Yes, and okay. absolutely not is it worse than Kramer versus Kramer. It's, it's a better movie than Kramer versus Kramer. It's a Best better picture. picture. for sure. It is a much better director. And the writing is so fucking good in this movie. I'm not I'm not agreeing on that. Oh my gosh. I you're I'm wrong. I'm not. Objectively, I might add. I'm not. Ugh. I, I Okay, don't, explain I, yourself. I'm, explain yourself to me, because I'm flabbergasted. Because the story sucks. Really? Yeah. 
sucks. What do you hate about the story? I hate how it ends. It or it doesn't end. It's bad. It's not. It's not. It's bad. And all that dialogue with Kurt's just bullshit. So it's bad. Nope. So, I buy all of that. Nope. Love it. Nope. Ah. Nope. Woo. Nope. Fighting words from you here. Whatever. Um, I'm going to give it to Kramer for that. I'm trying to decide if I think, I don't know. I think, think directing is a draw. I, 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 I can see it going either way. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, because the cinematographer. Kramer versus Kramer is all performances. The director didn't do shit. It was all the actors who came up with that. The directing in this movie, the choices Coppola makes are so integral to okay. what goes on in the movie. Okay, you've convinced me on director, but you won't convince me on writing. Fine. <laughs> also, Robert Duvall up for Best Supporting Actor, which he... Sh- ah, that is tough. Because that okay. kid is so good in that movie. I was about movie. to say, I was like, that kid was in there too, but neither of them won. Who did win? Melvin Douglas won for being there, which he was like the oldest at the time. I remember was the oldest uh, and the youngest. Being there is an amazing movie yeah. too, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, the the issue here is we're talking about these two movies. Justin Henry and Robert Duvall both give kind of right. amazing performances. Right. Hey, then I'm fine with, like, I think I said this with Kramer vs. Kramer. I'm fine with the nomination, but he didn't sort of win. I'll take this as a draw. That's fair. In terms of the acting of these two people. They both deserve their nominations. For sure. Uh, whether or not they deserve a trophy, whatever. And then finally, art direction. Okay, so it was nominated for Art Direction. Which I think is incredible. Honestly, I can see that. Here's the thing the B 52 tail yeah. that they roll under in the boat, that alone it's to me cool. is just like, fuck, dude. But it was up against heavy competition. Okay. It lost to all that jazz. And it was also up against Alien. Ooh, yeah. Which. Alien's iconic art direction. Yep. yep. Game changing yep. with H.R. Giger being there. Yep. Star Trek The Motion Picture. Eh. It was pretty cheesy. Yeah, and the China Syndrome, which isn't, I mean, I guess in terms of making it feel like an accurate nuclear reactor, maybe, mm-hmm. but I don't know. But being up against Alien and losing to all that jazz, which I've never seen, but I'm just like, okay, that's stiff. But for me, like, the thing that cemented how genius it is not only the temple and that's mostly that how they've got mm-hmm. everybody arranged on the set but when they go under that b-52 bomber yeah, and no. you see how fucking huge that tail wing is okay, and you're like cute. jesus christ all the all the helicopters hanging in trees and shit and you're like this feels like hell yeah this no. feels like hell it's, on earth it's very well done but that that was that was a tough category so the ending say yeah. you didn't like it nope Okay, what we saw was the original 1979 theatrical release. Okay. There were no credits at the beginning Mm -hmm. or the end of the film. Yep. When the audience went in, they were handed a program, much like you would get at a play. Okay. Which had all of the credits on it. A little different, but okay. Well, interesting tidbit. One of Coppola's original ideas for this movie was to put it in a place in Kansas, technically in the middle of the country, in one theater. And show it as a regular screening for 10 years only at that theater. Yeah, with the theater built just for the movie. With perfect sound design and everything. And it was an interesting business tactic because the idea was if anybody wanted to take it on the road, they had to go directly through him instead of the studio. 
Yeah. Because Coppola was trying to build a truly independent film structure. He was trying to copy Lucas's Star Wars deal. Honestly, what it was, was he founded American Zoetrope to be the answer to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to figure out, can we directly He's trying to separate kill... himself from that. Well, he was trying to A, do that, but also destroy the Hollywood system entirely. Yeah. And he failed, but yeah. So that never happened, clearly. Mm-hmm. They re-released it in 35mm with credits. Okay. And the credit sequence happened with explosions in the jungle. When he found out that audience members thought, oh, they ordered the airstrike. Because remember, he's on the, he tells them, oh, call the phone. Oh, they changed the film. Coppola starts hearing that people think, oh, okay, Willard ordered the airstrike, so everybody's dead. Mm-hmm. And Coppola's like, no, 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 no. I did never intended that. So they changed it. Yeah. And put credits on a black screen. Makes sense. But the original theatrical release is much like we saw just an American Zoetrope Pictures credit title at the end, and that was it. And walk out the door. Interesting. So nothing material to the ending change, but it went through some iterations. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a little weird. The Redux, which you are never going to see, and I'm never going to make you watch. Good. The main chunk that is missing, and it's important for you to know this for the documentary, is a scene of a French rubber plantation. It's this long-ass 40-minute sequence, which is historically and contextually interesting, where they talk about French colonialism and the Indo-Chinese War, because that's why we were... It gives you the hearts of darkness story, if you will. Not really. It's just that we're getting into why we went to Vietnam in the first place. Oh, yeah. We don't need that. It is fascinating from a contextual perspective of being like, oh, shit, okay, it's these rich people are the reason all of this gore is happening right now. Yeah. It's very unnecessary and very overlong and blah. There are two scenes, however, that I think they probably could have included in this movie or a few more. There was some extra combat before they meet Colonel Kilgore, which is like, whatever. But right before they leave on the boat... In the Redux, the team steals Colonel Kilgore's surfboard and runs off to the boat after he tries to chase after them. Because they're like, this guy's fucking insane. We're taking a surfboard. (laughs) That scene, along with some other discussion, feeds into the mango hunt scene. Okay. Gives it, flushes it out a little more why they do it. Because also there's a shot where you see his surfboard on the boat. Yeah. But you have no idea where it came from. Yeah. The last one is... And this is pretty gross, and I'm glad they don't do it. There's a scene with the Playmates oh. where they haven't quite made it off the island, and the, the boat guys make it over, mm-hmm. and they barter with them because they need fuel. They barter two barrels of fuel for two hours with the bunnies. Oh. And a very unnecessary sex scene. I don't know. At, at the time, I was like, okay, well, boobies, whatever. It's, you know... <laughs> The dialogue is interesting because they're the bunnies actually get into like the loneliness these guys are feeling. Yeah. The biggest thing though is that you get this part with Chef where he's unv- unraveling all of these emotions yeah. and loneliness he's yeah. feeling, and that is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, we got through it. Woo. We did. That's just this movie. Yeah. How many surfboards do you give this movie? Surfboards. I'm gonna give it four surfboards. Wow. You hate the ending, but you're still going to give it four surfboards. Uh, I hate the ending, and I hate Marlon Brando, but it's, it's a good movie. Up until then, it's stunning. It's a good movie. I love Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen does a lot for me for this film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, The Ride of the Valkyries is also fucking amazing. Uh, that's, I mean, yeah, we didn't talk about that, like, but holy it's shit, iconic. that scene. I mean, you can't talk about it because it's referenced over and over again. 
anytime anyone plays Ride of the Valkyries, people talk about this movie. But what's my a... context for it is the scene from Friends where Monica's singing that song and he's just like, what are you doing? She isn't singing. And he goes, that's Ride of the Valkyries from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> What, what I think is really great about that scene, though, is that it is done specifically within the context of the movie. So it's not a scoring piece. He's literally like, I play Wagner to freak the villagers out yeah. when we come in for the raid. And so all of it is masked yeah. by the sounds of the gunfire and the battle sequence, which is insane. Yeah. That is a war scene of epic proportions sure. that, I you know, you don't see even in modern movies. Mm-hmm. Like, it's done so well. And the way that, again, that Foley sound mixing yeah. over it's that nice. with... I'm with, probably going to have to watch that documentary because I, I know fascinating. But having all of those layers on top of Wagner mm-hmm. is what makes it work so well. Mm-hmm. And what makes everything else hacky because it's not used as a score. Yeah. It's used as a part of the sequence. True. No, absolutely. Um, and that's what makes it work click. No, oh, it's, it's just amazing. And so... I mean, you were supposed to give this first, but I went in. Oh, whatever. I'm going to give it four as well. Okay. I've readjusted my expectations. Also, this movie, for a two and a half hour movie. It moved very well. It moved so quickly. It helped that we were watching it early in the day, so we were not exhausted. Yeah. And we were caffeinated. But it also comes in vignettes. Yeah. Like, you you get a... It's still about 30 minutes too long, but it is pretty digestible. It's properly segmented. Yeah. So that once you feel like, okay, I'm ready for the scene to end, it ends. Yeah. And you get to the next part. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a four for me. It is an iconic war movie. It's not perfect. And Brando drags it. But, man, it still holds up for me. It doesn't stun me in the way it first did when I saw it. But it's still just very much a, a nightmarish vision of war. Hmm. Not, I think, the best version of a war movie I've seen but a very visceral, emotional vision of it. So whether you're coming to this first or second, make sure you're checking out our Hearts of Darkness episode, which is in our main feed. Um, but if you're listening to this, thank you so much for being a patron of Macintosh and Mod. You're so awesome for listening to this and being a patron. Thank you! <laughs> we love you so much for uh, for contributing and helping us do this stuff. We and, really enjoy doing it for you. And doing some more of these companion episodes to other episodes we were, were planning to do and have done. I know. Getting to watch some movies that I never, ever, ever thought you would watch. I fully volunteered for this one. I was so excited. I know. We needed to cross this off the list. I know, right? That list is pretty extensive. Uh, Oh, um, goodness. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll see you in the main feed soon for Hearts of Darkness. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye.